Hello, and welcome to episode four of Dangerous Exponents, the COVID-19 podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sackman, and with me is my co-host and the brains of the Dangerous Exponents operation, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Hello, brains of the Dangerous Exponents operation. Oh, I meant it was you. There's, there's only two of us. There's not, there's not personified brains that will be chiming in later. Um, so episode four is about schools. We've touched on this in passing in some of our previous episodes because so many of these things are interrelated, but we want to talk about school closings, the, the factors that go into the decisions behind school closings, how people feel about it, how it's affecting things beyond schools and, and children themselves. And we're doing that in a context, context of our overall goal here, which is to bring more analytical thinking to uh, all aspects of of the pandemic this year. Um, that's what we've tried to do in all of our episodes, and hopefully we'll do that with the school question as well. So, Carl, let's just start with, with the basics here. Pretty early in the pandemic, uh, one of the initial responses pretty much globally was to close all schools at the time that businesses were being closed, restaurants were being closed, pretty much everything was, was being closed with some slight differences from country to country. Um, but the difference has been... At, as the case counts declined in different countries around the world, how quickly they opened, how they opened, with what restrictions they opened, and then with the second wave this fall, how soon they closed again, and, and the question of how much schools have ended up contributing to the, uh, the growing case counts around the world. So let's, let's start with this question of, of super spreaders. A lot of people were worried that kids would... Uh, would be super spreaders, that schools would be tough to control, tough to enforce social distancing, tough to enforce mask wearing in. And as a result of that, schools would become hotbeds for community transmission of the virus. But it, is it fair to say that hasn't really been the case? It seems like schools are not particularly risky. Is that a, a fair overall assessment, Carl? Yeah, I think that it's likely that if schools were open the way they were open 12 months ago, that there some could be super spreaders and that they would not be worth being open. But like with so many other parts of our lives, we're not really asking, should we return exactly to how things were? But is there a, a changed form, a safer form of that practice? And I think at least in a lot of cases, we found that that school can work and schools can be open without any evidence of really adding to the spread with super spreading events, although they may be sustaining the community transmission that's already occurring uh, because of other uh, activities that people are doing because they have to economically or because they choose to. And that's something we'll get to later, that, that there are these activities that have to be done. I mean, there's always going to be some transmission because there's certain essential jobs, essential roles that have to be filled. And one of the questions about school openings or closings is how essential schools are. But I don't want to rush right into that. One issue that we've known since pretty early in the process is that the virus doesn't seem to affect kids as much. It's not a matter of them not getting infected, but in general, kids aren't dying from, from coronavirus. Uh, when they are getting the, the virus, they're not suffering as much. Often they're completely asymptomatic, but still have the potential to transmit. So one of the big questions with school closings is not 
just the danger to kids, but beyond the question of community transmission, it's the danger to staff. And how how much should we take that into account that that keeping schools open means having places open where there's lots of kids who maybe can't socially distance, um, but it's not them we're worried about. It's it's a whole class of of teachers and employees who are at risk just by virtue of going to work in a place like that. I think it's enormously important to take into consideration for all workplaces. And it's not just a, a question of either or, you do or you don't go to work in person, but what are the protections in place, including uh, protective equipment, practices like distancing and masks and testing. And there are also teachers of different ages and different vulnerabilities to the virus. And so we're not just talking about teachers, but as you said, any, any staff members. And it, it's, a real, it's a real issue for a lot of professions. And we, we kind of announce, we, we declare that some professions and some people are essential, are frontline. We, we put signs up in our windows and, and thank them and call them heroes. But there are some people who probably uh, core societal functions could continue if they did their job remotely or weren't doing their job, but who are really doing them because economically they have to. And I think uh, teachers and, and some other school staff are potentially in a different position, not necessarily because they're at greater risk, but because they have different power relative to their economic situation and their employers. I'm not sure I understand what you mean. What do you mean by different power? That they they have more potential influence. Uh, teachers in particular are typically unionized in public schools, and that gives them some collective bargaining, negotiating power uh, with the government entities that that employ them. And so it it often has been depicted. I, I've been watching this from New York, where this has been a really uh, controversial issue ever ever since there was talk of schools reopening. And it's often depicted as whether teachers want to go back to school or not. But it's not just about whether they go back, but in what conditions. And it's not just teachers, it's also principals. And a lot of it has to do with how much are their employers spending to protect them and their students and their fellow staff members by making schools uh, safe places to be. Okay, so the, you know, part of the issue is is the unions. And, and yeah, they, they are relatively powerful compared to some some other types of workers that we might discuss. Uh, one paper that I found fascinating that, that came out a few months ago discovered that uh, school closures or their duration or something was was pretty robustly correlated with the strength of the local teachers union and not correlated to the relative danger in the community of coronavirus. And it makes sense, given these things are all political. It's just interesting to see it demonstrated uh, with, with some degree of scientific rigor. Uh, it's one of the problems we have here is you mentioned the the fact that, that we're not just negotiating about a yes or no, going back or not going back. We're negotiating about how we go back, how much is invested in, in safety. But one of the questions is with, with all this social distancing and protective equipment, it all depends on people using it correctly. And it's one thing to expect fellow adults to do these things correctly and responsibly. It's another thing to expect children to do it. And the conventional wisdom has been from the beginning, I think that 
kids aren't going to wear masks. They're not going to socially distance. Uh, we have to make different decisions because of these assumptions that social distance isn't really an option here. But do you think that's that's reasonable? I mean, should we should we be looking at that more closely and and considering the possibility that kids might be as responsible as adults about this? Yeah, I'd at least like to see some more solid data, uh, starting from the standpoint of adults are pretty bad about this. It's something we've talked about on this show, and I think there there's a distinction to be made between adults feeling that they need to gather with family and that's important for their their happiness and their mental health and that of their family members and do they remember to keep their masks on do they remember to put them back on after eating do they remember not to unnecessarily be really physically close do they remember not to take their masks off when they want to talk to each other which seems like a common human impulse that's totally counterproductive so let's start from the standpoint of adults can forget this stuff or, or just be, be slack about this stuff uh, pretty frequently. And then also remember that for better or for worse, the way schools work is they rely on students to be rule followers and they train them to be. I mean, otherwise, how, how else do you get 30 something kids in a room with an adult and have it somehow sort of work? And this is another rule to follow. I also anecdotally know kids who seem to take the threat of coronavirus and the importance of protecting themselves and others more seriously and earnestly than, than many adults I know. So uh, I think a lot of schools have found that it can work. There are some math problems. Like if you have, if you are trying to keep students distanced, do you have the space for all of them? Do you have enough teachers if now you can't fit 30 something students in in the class. So it's not simple, but I think the part about will kids follow the rules was uh, maybe overblown, but I'd like to see some data. Yeah. And that's a recurring theme on this podcast. And I think it will recur in this episode as well, that there's a lot of questions that we just don't have the data to answer. Um, but one, one resource I found, I think it was an article in Science Magazine pointed out that students seem to be very good at mask wearing in China and Vietnam and Israel, you can make various arguments about how, say, American kids or Northern European kids might be different than than kids in those places. But your point's a valid one, Carl, that adults aren't that good at it, but adults don't have anyone watching them all the time and can, with the ability to threaten punishment, uh, whereas students do. So, I mean, my theory is that maybe mask wearing among children drifts more towards 0% or 100% than it does with adults. Because if if it's being enforced and if peer pressure is pointing in the direction of wearing masks, everyone's going to wear a mask in, say, a sixth grade classroom. But if the teachers don't really care, or maybe the teachers themselves don't even want to wear masks, or if peer pressure is very strongly against wearing masks, then I can see it reaching zero very quickly. But it's hard to imagine a school type environment where mask wearing is 50% or something like that in the way that you might see that in, in certain parts of the U S I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, so that's a factor that you mentioned the math problems of, of fitting kids into, into classrooms when you can only have fewer kids, fewer teachers, fewer classes, when you're trying to enforce a certain amount of distance between people that's something that schools seem to have embraced, um, maybe because it is fairly simple, even if we don't have the data to back it up, this idea that we can rotate kids or rotate teachers, uh, kids can go to school part-time, uh, 
I mean, do you think that's a that's a reasonable solution? And can it, it, does it make sense to you that we can we say we don't trust kids to do all this stuff, but yet we're willing to make this compromise to keep them in the classroom? I mean, is is that a reasonable conclusion to draw from at, at least our intuition, even if we don't have the data behind it to prove one way or the other? The conclusion to draw is that it's it's worth making that making those trade offs. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that it, we don't trust we don't trust students to wear masks. Apparently, I mean I'm using we very broadly and not entirely accurately. But some people are making decisions based on not trusting kids to wear masks, but they're still putting kids back in school with certain social distancing in place. So there's it's like we're we're trusting we're trusting kids a certain amount but not the whole way. I mean, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I think that mass and distancing are the, the two we're starting with, but you really have a lot of different measures to, to mitigate risk. And it, as long as you're never going to have risk of zero, you're always going to be able to reduce it somewhat. And it's, it's a question of how many of these can kick in. And so for instance, some some schools that didn't really have outdoor classes have been having outdoor classes. Uh, one of the schools in a busy part of Manhattan that that I know well, I walked past and I saw they had a big tent uh, in in the in the back in a pretty narrow space where with a lot of desks set up. You, you've also got uh, you know the, the option to at least open windows if you're going to be indoors potentially to upgrade the ventilation within buildings, although that that's where it starts to get more expensive to protect and, and maybe where there's been some clashes between teachers and their employers, between staff and, and the employers. And, you know, testing is another big part of it. So it, let's say by your premise that many people seem to think students won't, won't mask, if we do know relatively quickly relatively often when a student does test positive and can take appropriate measures, that's a big help. If we can keep classes separate from each other, so the number of potential people infected, the the size of the potential super spreader event we're all fearing is smaller, that can, that can help. Uh, and then you have a lot of parents who will look at this array of potential measures and say, that's not good enough because my my student, my child is is vulnerable, or we're vulnerable, or our parents are vulnerable, or I I just fear the coronavirus so much. I'm going to keep my kid at home and do it remote, and that limits the the demand on the school as well. So, you, you mask wearing is is maybe the thing that's most under control of the student, along with distancing. But there's a lot of other things happening that are that are also trying to keep thing keep any infection from spreading, even if those measures aren't being followed. Yeah, the ventilation is such a huge factor. And we're, I think at this point, we're starting to get a better idea of how important it is, and the distinction between outdoor versus indoor spread, and how much ventilation indoors can help with that. Uh, but that's, that could be a, a game changer in some of these situations. Uh, you mentioned the fact that even in schools that are staying open or staying partly open, some parents are choosing to keep kids at home. And the way you put it, you said the students are opting for remote learning or distance learning. And I hadn't thought about the complication of that, that you could have schools that are staying open, but then you have some kids who 
who want remote learning to be sort of simultaneous with offering in-person learning to the other students. But there's this big question about remote learning uh, in general. I mean, many schools, at least for some time, went 100% remote. Others have gone half and half or some mix in between. Many, many students around the U.S. and around the world, but I, I think the U.S. in particular, have are still remote now. And it sounds like that's not terribly effective. I mean, it, it, I don't think we have much data on this. I, I, I hunted a fair bit in preparing for this episode, and you can see a lot of theories about why it, it doesn't work as well for kids or how to make it better. But this is another area where we don't have a lot of data. I mean, what, what's what's your sense, Carl, on the effectiveness of distance learning for, for school-age kids? Like, is is there the potential that it really can replace in-person learning at this, these ages? I think it has the potential to replace and more, but in, in practice, it, it's been very ineffective and very, and, and probably has an even greater gap between the haves and have nots than in person when you're when you're all in the same classroom that levels a lot of the playing field although certainly not all of it and certainly what happens to kids outside of school has an enormous impact but with remote you're always outside of school and the gap in terms of the internet connection the quality of the the hardware you're using your familiarity with the technology whether you have a quiet comfortable place to to do your work whether you have someone around you who can help you basically be an, an in-person teaching assistant, uh, whether it's a parent or someone else. Uh, all, of, all of those factors come into play in a way that they don't. And then, you know, there's all the ways that remote anything is inferior to in-person. We'd be recording a better podcast right now if we weren't thousands of miles apart, but in the same room. Uh, you know, all of our workplaces are suffering at times from having to do things remotely that would be done much better in person. So it certainly can't be overall nearly as effective, and especially for some students, could be completely ineffective and also more diff make it more difficult for the, the people around them in, in the household who, who need to somehow facilitate. On the other hand, this doesn't take away from, from that, sure, the, the, that certain decline in the quality of, of teaching, but there were problems, of course, with the, the teaching model a year ago and what students were getting, especially poor students in crowded public schools. And whatever that experience in person was a year ago, it's certainly a lot worse in person now uh, for all the measures we talked about and um, for all the sort of risks and, and fears that, that are created even with the protective measures. So uh, I still you know, think that remote learning is barely learning for a lot of students but also there, there's a lot that's happening in person that is less than we desire because of the trade-offs we're making to try to prevent uh, spread of the virus. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really tough trade-off to, to decide on because we have so little data. I mean, we, I, I've seen various people try to make these calculations where we say, okay, some of these kids are losing X amount of education, whether you put that at if you just approximate it and say they're being set back a year or being set back a half a year. And there, we have some estimates for what the economic consequences of that are. And they're substantial. I mean, it's, it's 
really not a good thing for your future education, for your future lifetime earnings, if you miss a year of education. Um, but of course, we don't know what happens when everyone does. And then you not only have to make that approximation, you have to put that against what the costs are. And the costs in these terms are things that you can stick a number on, but they're things we're reluctant to stick a number on in terms of, of deaths in the community and illnesses in the community and things that are, it's very difficult to compare these. I don't want to say they're apples and oranges because we can express them all in economic terms if we, if we're willing to think in that way. But I think a lot of people will view these as apples and oranges, and it's very difficult to reconcile the two. But let's go back to the the health concerns, and I think we'll we'll end up looping back to remote learning. But when we are making those trade offs, we need to understand what the what the costs are. And as, as we've established, there is there is community transmission in schools. I mean, kids get it, kids spread it. They can spread it to adults. Those adults can uh, can get a worse case than your typical kid might. There are definitely risks there. But it seems to be the scientific consensus that kids are not super spreaders. I mean, am I saying that too strongly or is that, is that your impression as well, Carl? Well, too strongly only in the sense of there probably have been a couple. And one of the stories we, we read described a case in France before in February before we were aware of we weren't using the term super spreader. We weren't really testing for COVID in the West. And it seems like a school became a super spreader spot, although it wasn't just students, but staff and uh, probably started with staff. The, I, I, I think what we know, f especially from the work of Emily Oster and her team in, in trying to gather all this data on the prevalence of coronavirus in school systems that are open, is that it's not any higher. The, the infection rate doesn't seem to be any higher than in their surrounding communities. Which doesn't mean, it confirms what you said, that there is going to, of course, be some transmission, but that it's the same transmission that's already happening. So it's part of the overall community spread, not necessarily, or no reason to think it's exacerbating it or, you know, exploding it with these particular cases. I think one could have been misled if just reading the initial coverage of schools reopening in, in August in the U.S., because there, the districts that did have outbreaks early uh, were were kind of s under a spotlight and a lot of people were writing about them and the implication was this is going to happen everywhere not inevitably this will happen in some places if we open schools in a lot of places but now that we've got a few months under our belt and the work of uh, Professor Oster and her team it, it does look like it's um, it's not adding additionally to what is already community spread and rising community spread but that most likely that increase is not specifically because of schools, but more because of just general circulation and exposure within communities. Yeah, and an, another important distinction to make is it, it is between talking about schools and talking about kids. And I've been guilty of, of conflating the two already, but there was this giant study done in India. I think it had something like 600,000 subjects or 800,000 subjects. And the conclusions are very clear. Kids get it, kids spread it. Uh, there's nothing there's nothing particularly protective about being a child from the virus but they did this all at a time when schools were closed so granted how kids interact with each other and how people interact with each other in general is probably pretty different in in cities in india than it is from cities or other parts of the us and, and europe uh, 
you have to keep that in mind as well. Like you can't close schools and, and know for sure that everyone will then follow different rules or stay effectively quarantined at home. That's a factor as well. But you've mentioned Emily Oster and her team a couple of times. I think we mentioned her on a past episode, but it's worth bringing this up and being clear about what we're talking about. We've already mentioned the, the difficulty of having data for many of these questions, just partly because it's so new, partly because in the U.S. data can be so fragmentary with the, the federal system and, and so many different school districts around the country. But can can you describe, Carl, what exactly uh, are Oster and her team doing? What data are they collecting? And what can we learn from it about the pandemic in schools? Yeah, where, the, where it's possible, they've been compiling the rate of infection among students and staff in school districts and then comparing them to the surrounding communities and also spotlighting places where, where there is no such data. And the New York Times separately has been trying to track this as well, and there are plenty of blank spots on their map. And it the availability of this data including over time is is a way to to try to answer this question of did the places that open schools see large outbreaks and are the schools seeming to be sites of heightened spread that that likely are then going back to households and then out into the to the community and the overall numbers at least for the places where they're where they're able to gather this data suggests that the answer is no. Schools and, and students are not super spreaders. So we have good data on this question. We have at least some preliminary answers. And that applies to elementary schools, junior highs, high schools. But there seems to be a, a major distinction between the experience of reopening all those schools up to high schools, so say 17, 18-year-olds, and the experience of having universities reopen. Um, which feels like a pretty natural part of this discussion as well. And the experience in at least some places where universities have reopened is very different. And this maybe this is anecdotal, the way you were talking about the media coverage of certain places when, when other schools reopened this fall. But it seems like there might be more to it. Carl, do you get the sense that reopening a university for the for the fall is more dangerous than reopening schools for younger kids i do get the sense i i still want to see uh really for for k through 12 as we call it in in the u.s of elementary school middle school high school and then also for for colleges like the chart showing um the rate of change of, or maybe the, the R value, which we talked about a couple of episodes ago, how, how quickly the infections are spreading in places where students did return in person to universities. And then um, also for the younger students where schools reopened compared to places where it's all virtual, just to see, are we sure that this doesn't affect actually how quickly um, the infection is increasing even if the, the numbers are lining up but logically you would expect a difference for universities especially for universities where people live on campus and especially among those 
universities where people have traveled from some distance to live on campus. So, I, you know, I think that's an important distinction when we're talking about universities where people mostly drive there, or community colleges where people drive there and then go home. It's not as different as um, for for younger students. But if if people are flying and then mixing with people from all around the country and then also living on site and potentially also spreading uh, to various events, including parties around town, you would expect that that would have a much bigger effect on, on virus circulation. And the, the New York Times also is tracking those outbreaks. And while it's difficult to sort of interpret the total numbers they're reporting, like this many hundreds of thousands of cases have been traced to universities that have reopened, well, what does that mean in the broader context? It does seem like there are enough examples of communities where a lot of people came back to live on campus and then uh, the community outbreak became out of control and spread to very vulnerable populations outside of the the 20-somethings who are much less likely to die of coronavirus. Yeah, it is it is tricky to interpret all this in real time because so much of what we have to deal with is basically just anecdotes. I mean, uh, the New York Times and others are doing really important work trying to turn it into data, but often we're still at the stage of having a lot of anecdotes thrown together that we can't really interpret well. And then another factor to consider with universities is because they are more likely to be freestanding institutions, often very well-funded ones, at least in the sense that they have students who are paying a lot of money to go there, they can try different kinds of solutions. And I I hope I get the details right with this. The University of Illinois uh, in Champaign-Urbana, uh, they, I guess, had a pretty successful sem fall semester in terms of virus outbreak, and they did it by testing constantly, testing universally. And the, the sort of show-stopping number was in the fall semester, they did something like 1 million coronavirus tests, um, which is more than than one of the Dakotas has done total uh, over the course of the whole pandemic. And the Dakotas have not done particularly well. Uh, but this idea that if you, yes, you're mixing a lot of people from, from around the country, from different workplaces, from different populations. But if, if you do create, I don't want to say it's a bubble because a, a, a school the size of the University of Illinois could never be a bubble. But if you have some control over the environment as an administrator and you can say everyone's going to get tested x number of times with this frequency and if you get a positive test uh, this is what's going to happen you're going to be careful if, if you can expect some degree of compliance with that then this is what a lot of people have been saying we should be doing more broadly across the whole society I mean, we, we sort of botched the roll out of, of tests early on and and getting the production of tests scaled up has been a challenge all along but at least in these in these micro communities uh, of schools like this, they can try it. And in some cases, it's been very successful. Now, of course, not all schools have done that. And some of the universities where the outbreaks have been observed, they weren't the ones clearly testing constantly and, and having good results in a semester. But these things can go both ways. And that's something that's a lot easier to do at a university level than it is at a school district level. Um, with public schools facing different sets of challenges. Jeff, your point about testing and testing at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, try to say the whole thing, it's a mouthful. It's, it's really a reminder of not just that we 
still don't really have enough tests in the U.S. and we're still deciding, although of course not collectively, but we're somehow figuring out through the market and other mechanisms who will get tested and when and how. And I'm seeing lines of you know people out the door of small urgent cares in New York City waiting for their tests. I think one of the real limiting factors is just the people who do the tests. And I think they're all working overtime, but there's only so many they can do in, 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 a, in a given day. And we're starting to get some home test kits, but I don't think we really know yet how good people are at, at taking their own samples. And I think this is a real challenge is, you know, is it scalable to do something like that in schools for, for students of all ages in other potential environments where it would really help limit outbreaks if we could do constant testing? Is there the mechanism in place, not just the, the physical tests and the ability to, to run the tests back at the lab? And, the other thought I'm, I'm having so often in these conversations is that the U.S. has set up this great system to have lots of parallel experimental groups running at the same time, different approaches to all of the things we're talking about, both the safety and the quality of education at these schools for students of different ages and levels. But we don't have the mechanism of gathering all the data and then deciding what are the best uh the best solutions and the best programs and then instituting them broadly. And I think we're seeing this with the pandemic, but we see it all the time without it. Yeah, that's a, a, a really important point. And as you say, not just with the pandemic, I know you did some, some work in the past with pr police brutality stats, and that's something that's not reliably aggregated at the national level. Uh, and yeah, there is so much important work being done with data sets that people are able to cobble together. But I, mean, I think about this a lot in different contexts. Uh, but it, Google used to or still has a slogan like organizing the world's data or something like that. And what I always think is it's organizing the world's data that can be organized. And that's a very, very different thing. Because if, if you want to do certain types of comparisons, like whether these we have all like you say we have all these natural experiments going on we want to know whether one type of remote learning is working and another isn't or we want to know whether one type of of social distancing in schools working and another isn't you have to have the data recorded in a certain way you have to have a certain consistency you have to know what's out there uh and that's a really really hard problem i mean it, the the easiest way to solve it is to not let the problem develop in the first place decide early on what data you want to collect and force everybody to collect it but in the us that's not how it works it's never going to be how it works and i always end up in this place where i end up with this this unexpected re respect for the data miners the data cleaners the data cludgers whatever words you want to use i probably end up with that respect because it's kind of what i do for a living but it's it's not easy stuff. It's extremely unglamorous. But when you look at a project like what Emily Oster is doing, it's it's not the most interesting thing she's done in her career by a long shot. But simply creating the data that other people can work with is enormously important. And I that might be one of the main things that we're lacking. I mean, if, if you want to point to the limitations or the flaws in the U.S. government's response to this, I, mean, I want to say multiply by 10 or multiply by, by 100 the amount of resources you throw at these sort of data collection problems. So, so Carl, if, if, if assuming, hoping that you agree with me at least partway there, if, if, if we did have more data to 
to control, to have these kind of natural experiments, to ex observe what we're learning from the natural experiments. Um, what would you want to look at? I mean, what, would you be more interested in 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 different social distancing practices practices in schools and the educational effect of different um, distance learn distance learning approaches, remote learning approaches in schools? Like, what are the studies you'd want to do that we don't have yet? Definitely different remote learning approaches. I, I've read almost nothing about that. I mean, I'm assuming that. <clears throat> Even if not at the district level, at the teacher level, there are people innovating on how to somehow make Zoom school work better, even if it's not going to work as well as in-person school. <clears throat> and then for in-person practices, if we can figure out which of the measures is most effective and which what the compliance rates are, then we can, we can zero in on, on getting really good at those. Because, for instance, we know that... Uh, there are school buildings of lots of different ages and construction and if there are like simple fixes to improve the circulation of air and ventilation that really seem to make a difference then getting those out everywhere instead of trying to somehow you know do major reconstruction on these buildings is a lot more practical um, understanding the different protocols for testing, like how frequently to test, and then what happens if somebody tests positive and what happens to the people in their in their circle. Uh, the rate of spread to immediate contacts, basically doing the, the India study, which involved testing, like you said, almost a million people, doing a version of that uh, with different programs in, in the U.S. and understanding if there, there are certain uh, people who are particularly vulnerable if they know school-age children who are going to school. I, I mean, my, my wish list is long, so I, I guess I would need to rank them, but um, I think there's a lot to understand on both the safety side, which is one side of the trade-off, and then on the education side, which is the other. Yeah, as listeners of our tennis podcast will know, Carl's, Carl's wish list of research ideas is always long, regardless of the topic that you raise. But those, those are all good ones. And I think most of this episode, we've, we've talked around a lot of these issues because you know, we claim to be trying to take an analytical approach to these issues. And often we don't have the data to analyze or it's in a, a very inchoate state. So, so we don't have the answers and maybe we won't have the answers until the pandemic is, is mostly behind us. Hopefully we'll learn something from all this that we can apply someday, hopefully in, in other less deadly circumstances, but it's going to take some time. Uh, if if I try to pin you down for some some general impressions, we have, like I said at the outset, some places where schools have opened pretty quickly, uh, some places where schools remain closed. If you had to just give a yes or no answer, Carl, do you think that let's just let's limit this to the U.S. for simplicity's sake? Do you think the districts in the U.S. have been too quick or too slow to reopen schools? I guess too slow, although maybe the right speed relative to what they've done to make sure they're doing, they're, they would reopen correctly. So a bit of a cop out, but I think, you know, probably right now we should have a lot more students in schools in the U.S. On the other hand, I don't have a lot of confidence in local jurisdictions that they've 
laid enough of the groundwork or, or have been studying the, the studies we found or, or the, the examples of other states, cities, and countries well enough to do it right? That seems reasonable. I mean, it, so, so your answer is not so much that schools should have opened sooner. It's that more should have been invested in figuring out how to open schools sooner. Is that fair? Yeah. And that there, there was even this natural experiment starting this school year where some places were opening and that I, I kept thinking sort of like with what countries can do with vaccine rollouts and, and, and with lots of interventions that there's an advantage to waiting because you can watch and learn, see how bad it gets and so on, and then, and then open. But it doesn't seem like that many of the districts that started the semester virtual really left themselves open to, to changing during the, the, so maybe in January, we'll see that change. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I, I think if I had to demand one thing, it would be more flexibility. And maybe that's something that's uh, it's too much to ask for when you think about things like school districts, which are, I, I think it's safe to say traditionally pretty uh, tradition bound. They're fairly slow to move like any any bureaucratic government entity. And for something like education, maybe that's appropriate most of the time. But this is not most of the time. The problems are very different and the stakes are at the very least different, probably higher. So, yeah, I mean, I want to see more flexibility. I would, I, I think there are lots of schools that could have opened sooner, but maybe more cautiously and then run their own, not experiments exactly, but just kind of embraced it with more spirit of experimentation. And I think that some of that probably ap applies society-wide when, when we've been reluctant to make big decisions because it felt like the big decisions had to be made once and not not just doing ongoing tweaking. That's one advantage of of smaller societies that maybe have more of a culture of consensus, like like Norway, where I am, where it, it feels like there's more constant tweaking going on. And it doesn't, the tweaking doesn't necessarily feel like the politicians were wrong before, or they're just making changes for the sake of making changes. It just feels like it's a, it's a changing situation. Uh, we're learning more as we go. Things are changing on the ground. Therefore, we make tweaks and we adjust to them. Um, but that's tougher to do. The, the broader the, the society is, the more diverse the society is, so it's tricky. It is tricky, Jeff. All of this is, and much like the pandemic, all of these questions and challenges are ongoing. Hopefully we two non-scientists, non-doctors can at least shed some light on how to analyze the questions we're facing, the kind of data we'd like to see, the kind of research projects we hope to see in the world. Of course, students and schools aren't sites for intentional experiments, but by doing all these different things all around the world, we're at least learning about how different kinds of approaches lead to different results in education and in keeping people safe. So we'll be back soon to discuss another topic from this analytical framework about COVID-19. There are so, so many in our list that we're going to dig into and hopefully soon in the future with some guests who have much more subject matter expertise than we do. Until then, I'll look forward to talking to you again soon, Jeff. Bye.